Welcome to Engage Boise. We hope that you enjoy this live recording of our Sunday service. This morning what we're going to do, we're going to continue with our Thanksgiving in the Psalms series. This is a series that Pastor John started last week. Uh, And if you know Pastor John at all, you know he loves the book of Psalms. Uh, He reads it probably more than anyone that I know. Uh, I give Psalms a try, and I make it about halfway through, and I'm like, how long is this book? There's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, But I have had the privilege of spending some time this uh, last couple weeks taking a look at Psalms and reading and and really diving into what it has to say. And man, it is rich with some amazing stuff. So I'm really excited that we're doing this series together. Today, what we're going to be doing, we're going to take a look at a Psalm that was written by David. David is an important character in the Old Testament. Uh, And David is actually specifically noted as being the author of 73 different psalms. So 73 different of the psalms, it'll say a psalm of David. Like it specifically says his name. Chances are that he wrote more than 73, but we know specifically that it's mentioned that he wrote 73 of them. And so today, we're going to be taking a look at one of those specific ones. Now, as I said, he's a really important character in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament because he's in the lineage of Jesus. And we get to learn probably more about David than just about anybody else in the Old Testament because so much of his story is found within the Bible. And we get to learn about who he was based on the things he wrote in Psalms. And as we learn about David, we learn that there are a few things that David was really, really, really good at. Initially, when we first hear David, one of the first things we hear about is we, we all know the story that David was really good with a sling. There was Goliath and the Philistines, and they were coming out, and David saw him, and he's like, I can take that guy, right? And so David, he'd been practicing with his sling day and night, and he went and watched the sheep. He fought the bear and the lion, all the cool stuff, right? And he was really good with the sling. He goes and he fights Goliath. If I'm David, I'm taking more than five stones because, like, I don't care how good I am with this thing. I need more than five shots. David, he just needs one. Uh, And it's really cool to see that he practiced something and he became really good at it. We see that he was good at playing the harp or playing an instrument of some kind because uh, he went and led worship in the presence of Saul. We see that David was really good at winning battles. Uh, when he was running away from Saul and experiencing all the crazy stuff, he led his mighty men. That's how the Bible describes it. There are some incredible stories about the feats that these guys did. David was a great leader. We also see, unfortunately, David was really good at sinning. Like David, we think of David and all the good stuff about him. David might have one of the biggest like stories of screwing up in the Bible. David is hanging out. Uh, it says when the king's Uh, At the time when kings would go off to war, David instead decided to stay home. And he goes and walks out on the the roof of his palace. He looks out, he sees Bathsheba, and he's like, that lady's good looking, right? And there's this whole story about how he calls Bathsheba, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and he tries to cover it up. He murders her husband, and all this crazy craziness, right? Like David really good at sinning. He was not just like junior varsity at sinning. He skipped straight to varsity and was really good at screwing up. But we also learned something really important about David. See, David was really good at repenting. That's one of the beautiful things about David is even though David, he screwed up at times, he was really good about recognizing the mistakes that he made that he would own up to his actions. And in fact, the book of Acts describes David as a man after God's own heart. 
And we see that even though David's life isn't an example of how we should necessarily live, his heart was one of how we should live, that he would surrender himself to God again and again, and he understood he needed God's grace in his life. We actually see, interestingly, the king before David, King Saul, he started off the kingship pretty well, but he had a tendency to give in to sin as well. And ultimately, he had his kingdom stripped from him because of his response to that sin. See, when Saul messed up, he was not very good at repenting. Saul was good at a lot of stuff. He was mostly really good at being tall. It says that he was a head taller than everyone else. But when he would mess up, he would not take ownership of his actions. Instead, he would play the blame game or he'd come up with some kind of excuse. And ultimately, that's what led to his kingdom being stripped from him. And then we see David, even though he screwed up even worse than Saul at times, David is known as a man after God's own heart because he was willing to say, God, I take ownership of my actions, and I want to repent from my sins. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to take a look at a psalm where David talks about his experience of confessing his sin and being forgiven. And so our title today is Psalm chapter 32, Forgiven and Covered. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm chapter 32. I'll freely admit I cheated and I have it in my notes already. So I'll give you a second if you want to open to Psalm chapter 32, Forgiven and Covered. This psalm is, uh, as I said, it's a psalm written by David. It says it was written by David. It isn't directly associated with an event that took place in his life. Uh, It is a sister psalm in many ways to, uh, I think it's Psalm 51. I could be wrong on the reference there. When David was repenting of the thing he did with Bathsheba, we see a lot of similarities between the two. But we don't actually know exactly what he's talking about at this point in life. We just know that he's experienced the forgiveness of God, and he wants us to know what that's all about. So we're going to start right there at verse 1, Psalm chapter 32, looking at verse 1. It says, David writing, it says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. Now, I love this psalm because David, what he does is he gets to the punchline right at the beginning here. He doesn't like set things up and try to build this story. He just comes right out at the beginning. And the punchline is this, and this is the big thing he wants us to understand, is that whoever has their sins forgiven is blessed. There is blessing in having your sins forgiven. We actually see in these first two verses, David, he gives three words to describe sin itself. And he gives three words to describe the forgiveness that God offers. What he's doing is he's giving a comprehensive understanding of how big sin can be, how much of an issue sin is in his life. And he also gives this comprehensive understanding of how much bigger and how much greater the grace of God truly is. And so uh, I have a slide up here. Um, The Hebrew word is up there. I'm not going to attempt to say the Hebrew words because I am an Idaho boy. Uh, and I cannot speak Hebrew to save my life. I, I, I was going to try. I asked Google how to pronounce these things, and I realized really quick I should not try to pronounce them because I'll probably end up swearing in Hebrew on accident or something. But uh, we see here in verse 1, he uses two different words to describe sin. Uh, this uh, translated uh, to transgressions and sin. In verse 3, actually in the NIV that we read this morning, uh, uses the word sin as well. Um, other translations use the word iniquity. Uh, and I want to highlight just these for just a moment and see what David is speaking about here. We see this first word, transgressions, and the idea behind this word is this idea of crossing the line or defying authority. See, it's a sin that is committed knowingly and purposely. 
This is when you know you shouldn't put your hand in the cookie jar and you go ahead and do it because you want that cookie, right? Knowingly and purposely committing that sin. You see, the next word he uses to describe sin is this idea of falling short or missing the mark. And maybe a better way to look at this is like even when we may try to do the right thing, we still come up short. We just can't seem to get it together and we come up short every single time. And then the idea behind inequity as I said in the NIV, it uses the word sin again. It's this idea of crookedness or distortion, that the condition of our hearts is always leaning towards sinfulness. And so it could be said that sin may be the result of knowingly crossing the line, an inability to live up to the standard that we have, or the result of that sinful nature within us. And so David, in these first two verses, he describes sin in this big, broad idea that it can be many of these different things that point us towards sinfulness. But the good news is, is as big as sin is, and as much as it may permeate every part of our lives, the grace of God is bigger. And so he describes forgiveness in three different ways. And so at first he says that his sins are forgiven. And it's this idea of lifting a burden or a debt. And so when our sin is removed from our lives, we are no longer having to carry that around. It's no longer a weight that is upon our shoulders. It has been removed from our lives. You see, this idea of something being covered, uh, pointing to the sacrificial blood covering of sin. That someone paid the price in full for our sins. That we no longer owe the debt. It has been paid for. And then finally, this idea of not imputing or not holding over is is a bookkeeping term. Uh, And it means that it doesn't count against the person anymore, that there's no longer a record of wrongs uh, that may be brought up in the future again, that uh, it's as if it never existed in the first place. Whoa, our lights just died. Look at that. Hey, they're back. God said, let there be light. And it was so. So we see when it comes to forgiveness and sin that no matter the condition of our heart, no matter what actions we take, when God says that we are forgiven, then we are truly and fully forgiven once and for all time. That debt has been paid, and it is no more. And so David, he has experienced the grace of of God in his life, and he understands that God's forgiveness is bigger and better than anything he could possibly comprehend. I love how A.W. Tozer puts this, and we'll have it on the screen. He says this, The grace of God is infinite and beyond our ability to measure. His grace has no beginning and therefore no end. See, God's grace is so large that we can't even possibly comprehend it. And that's the beauty, and that's the blessing that David is talking about in this psalm, that God's grace is so big that the burden of sin is no longer upon us. And so David comes right out with that punchline, first and foremost, that we need to understand. There is blessing, and we are blessed when we receive the forgiveness of God. Then what he does is he actually backtracks, and he reflects on a time in his life before receiving the grace of God, and he talks about that experience. It's found in verses 3 and 4. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This does not sound like a fun experience. And what David is talking about here is he's talking about the agony of unconfessed sin. Now, we don't know exactly what David is speaking about here. We don't know if he is referencing to his experience with Bathsheba. We don't know if he's referencing to some other situation that he'd had in his life. But regardless, there had been some kind of sin in his life, some decision or something about his heart uh, that he'd given into. 
And for whatever reason, he felt like he had to try to keep it hidden from God. He knew he messed up, but he wasn't willing to go to God and talk to God about it. He was trying to hide it away. And because he was hiding it away or trying to shy away from God, this sin began to have an effect on his life in a very real way. He describes his bones as feeling like they're wasting away, that he has no more strength, or that it's like he's going on this walk on a hot summer day, and it's just the sun is beaten down and he has no more strength. He wakes up in the morning and he doesn't feel like getting out of bed. Uh, he is just struggling, and it's the results of the sin that he has in his life that he's not willing to confess. And I think what he's speaking to is this idea that there can be physical fallout from unconfessed sin in our lives. The way that David describes this feeling is a very physical and real and raw feeling. And I think this morning what we need to understand is that when it comes to sinfulness in our lives, that there can actually be a physical uh, fallout from that. Going back and taking a look at sin and its effect on people, we see in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how we live in a fallen world that is suffering under the effects of sin. In Romans 8, he talks about how creation is awaiting and eagerly expecting for Jesus' return, that it's crying out as if it's in like birth pains and it's struggling and it's, it's uh, suffering. And he talks about how we suffer as a result. So sin, when it was introduced into the world, all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve came uh, and they surrendered to that temptation in their life, they invited sin into the world and it began wreaking havoc on everything, not just people. But creation itself has been affected and permeated by the effects of sin. And we see that sin ultimately leads to death. Sin will never lead to life, but it ultimately leads to death. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. See, there's a progression that takes place with sin in our lives, and ultimately it points to death and suffering. And now, the effects of sin in our lives can have both spiritual and physical effects. And, I, and this is the point that I want us to understand this morning. I think that we can have a tendency maybe to separate the spiritual from the physical without realizing that they are actually connected. See, it's really easy to see the physical effects of something in our life. Like if I stub my toe, I can be like, ow, my toe hurts. That's really easy to understand. The spiritual side of things can be a little bit harder to understand because it may not always be obvious to us. Our five senses may not pick up on it right away. I think sometimes we treat them as completely separate things, and especially spiritual things we treat as if they're far off or they're maybe for end times things or for my future at some point. For example, I think that it's easy for us to understand that our relationship with God suffers because of sin. I think that it can be pretty easy to understand that, that God is perfect, that he's holy, and because of our sinfulness, we've been separated from God, and that we need a Savior, right? That's what Christianity is all about. Or that maybe uh, we need our sins forgiven in order to inherit eternal life. We get that there is a spiritual life that takes place after our physical life here on earth. Uh, and we think of the spiritual effects of sin only in that sense. But we see that sin can have an effect in our life today and now. We actually see this in the New Testament a few different times. I was thinking of some examples where sin actually caused illness or even death in people's lives. Sometimes we think of sin affecting people in a physical way as, a, as an Old Testament problem. 
Uh, but we actually see in the New Testament there are some examples of this. The first one we see is actually found in Acts chapter 5. We only got five chapters into the church and people started screwing up, right? We see this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and I encourage you to read it sometime. I'll give you the quick, quick version. Uh, the church, when it began, people started giving their lives to Jesus. And it says that the community of believers was so committed to one another, they were willing to sell their possessions and give it to the church so that those that were in need uh, could be blessed as a result. And so what was happening is these people, they'd come to know Jesus. Uh, they would have their lives radically changed by the power of the Spirit. Uh, and then they would go and they would sell like some property. And they'd take the money to the church and they'd be like, hey, you guys should give this to people who need it. And then the church would divvy it out where it was needed. There's a story of these people named Ananias and Sapphira. They gave their lives to Jesus, apparently. They felt called to go and, and sell their property, so they went and sold it. Uh, but the problem was, instead of bringing all of the money to the church, what they did is said, hey, we're going to give some of the money to the church. It might even have been most of the money. We're going to give most of the money to the church, but we're going to hold on to some of it ourselves. And so they had this selfishness within them, and they go, and how the story goes is one of them brought the money to the church, and uh, I, I think it's Peter, if I remember right. He calls him out, and he's like, hey, is this all the money that you sold the property for? And they had a moment right there where they could have said, yeah, that's, that's the price, or they could have said, you know what, we decided to keep some for ourselves. But they didn't. They said, yeah, that was the full price, and, and uh, he says, well, you're going to die is basically what happens. And so they were struck right there in that moment. Uh, and they died because they had lied about the money that was given. They, they lied to the Holy Spirit, basically. Um, and then we see that, uh, I think it's Ananias who dies first, and then Sapphira comes in, and they're like, hey, is this all the money? And she's like, yeah, it is. And he's like, hey, the people that just took your husband away are coming in the door, and they're going to take you away as well. And she dies. And so we see there that it isn't because they had withheld some of the money as I said, they totally could have done that. It was their property to do whatever they wanted to with. It was because they lied about the money that was given. They were trying to uh, build themselves up while trying to um, hoard some of it for themselves. And so we see that there's an actual effect. They died because of the sin in their lives. They willingly and hopefully gave themselves over to that sin in that moment. We also see in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul talks about communion. And he's encouraging the church in Corinth. He says, hey, uh, when it comes to taking communion, some of you are doing it in an unpleasing manner. And what was happening is the church, they would gather for communion. And it wasn't just like the piece of bread and a, a little cup of juice, like how we celebrate communion nowadays. It was a whole meal that they would celebrate. And those that were wealthy and well-off would throw these big meals. And what they would do is they would just pig out. They would eat as much as they wanted. They would drink as much as they, would, they wanted without taking into account those that were less off. And so people would show up to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and people would be getting drunk and stuffed, and other people would be left out. And it was just not honoring to Jesus and to the body of Christ as a whole. So Paul actually says in verse 30, he says, because of your actions, because of the things that you are doing, uh, some people are getting sick and have even died because they've taken communion in an unworthy manner and are guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And so Paul talks about there are actual effects, there are physical effects that can take place in someone's life because of sin. And so going forward from this, there are a couple things I do want to highlight when it comes to the effects of sin in someone's life that we need to understand. And the first is this, is that not all illness is a result of unconfessed sin. 
Certainly unconfessed sin, as David speaks about in the book of Psalms, as we see in those couple examples in the New Testament, it can have a very real and physical effect on our lives. But simply put, not all illness, if you see someone sick, is not necessarily because they cheated on their taxes or something like that. See, viruses, bacteria, cancer, strained muscles, all of that stuff is real. Uh, it, It takes place in our lives today. And sometimes if someone is sick, it's as simple as having a four-year-old son that goes to preschool, and that's just a breeding ground for bacteria, man, right? Like, we put our son in, in preschool, and we get sick all the time now, right? Sometimes it's as simply as that. And now certainly, all suffering is a result of the original fall of man. So going back, all suffering is a result of that. But not all specific suffering in somebody's life today is because they have some unconfessed sin. It's important that we understand that. If someone has a cold, it's not because, as I said, they're cheating on their taxes. They may just have a four-year-old that likes to eat things off the floor. I don't know, right? It can be as simple as that. Um, And so it's important that we understand that it is the result of sin that we have suffering, but individual sufferings may not be the result of unconfessed sin. Number two is this, we also can't assume that people's illnesses is a result of their sinfulness. It's important that we don't get to play the judge when it comes to other people's unconfessed sin. Certainly God can speak to us, and he can have us speak to other people about things that they're doing in their lives, Um, but it is not our job to be the judge. And we actually see, if we look at the book of Job, if you know the story of Job, he was a man that served God. Really crazy story. He was basically went through this time of testing, uh, and he proved himself to be faithful to God, but... Uh, What had happened is his family had been killed, all of his stuff had been taken, and he's just like sitting in the ashes, and he's struggling in life. And then actually what happens, fortunately, he has some friends show up, which is great. If you're going through hard things, you have friends show up. But we find out his friends are maybe not the best friends in the world because he's going through all his hard things, and his friends actually accuse him of doing the wrong. They have this mindset that the reason that Job is struggling is because he must have some kind of sin in his life. Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, this is one of his friends speaking to him. This is one of the first speeches by his friends. He says, Consider now, who being innocent has ever punished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of this anger they are no more. And so Job's friend had this mindset that if you do good things, good things happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. So therefore, if bad things are happening to you, you must have done some bad things. And we find out that it was not Job's sinfulness or any kind of thing like that that he was experiencing these things. That was not the cause of his illness. And so it's important in our lives that we don't assume that other people that are going through things, other people that are struggling is a result of some kind of specific sin in their lives. So looking back at David, we see that it's pretty evident that David knew that he had hidden sin in his life and that he understood the struggles he was experiencing were a result of that hidden sin. If you're getting sick all the time uh, and you pray like, man, I I don't know if I have unconfessed sin in my life. I I have a feeling you're going to know if you have unconfessed sin. You're going to know if the thing that you're struggling with is going to be because you're hiding something in your heart. 
Because really, it's that guilt buried within us that is calling out, saying, hey, there's something that's got to change within you. I can't keep going in this direction. So it's important that we recognize that, that not everyone gets sick because of some kind of unconfessed sin. And it's not our job to assume other people's illness is the result of their sinfulness. You guys tracking with me? Because if we get this wrong, we're going to walk out of here, and we're going to look at people, and we're going to be like, you need to quit sinning. And that's not exactly what God calls us to do. I, this is totally random. I heard... Um, this podcast, this is terrible. Someone was talking about this church that um, they had claimed that anyone that passed away from COVID were people that were living in a life of sin. It didn't matter how much they loved Jesus or anything like that. If you died from COVID, it was because you were a sinner. And that's not like, that's just not what the Bible teaches us here. We see that sometimes really sin is, it does ultimately lead back to the cause of sin in the beginning. And so we see here, David, he experiences this physical affliction in his life. He's going through and he's, he's struggling in life because he has this hidden sin. And he recognizes that I am struggling because I have this thing in my life. And he's tired of it and he decides to actually do something about it. And so we pick up again in verse 5. Psalm 32, verse 5. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, David knew that he had unconfessed sin in his life. He'd been trying to hide something. Uh, He was tired of experiencing the guilt and the shame and maybe the physical effects of that in his life. And he finally said, I've had enough. I need to confess this and I need to turn to God. And so he goes from having unconfessed sin to confessing his sin and experiencing the grace that God offers him. And I think of this idea of unconfessed sin. Having unconfessed sin in our lives is like going to the doctor with a compound fracture, but only talking about the cold symptoms you're experiencing. It's like having a broken arm with a bone sticking out of your skin. You go in and the doctor's like, all right, what's wrong with you? And you say, well, my nose is kind of runny. Meanwhile, your hand is like dangling there, right? That's what unconfessed sin is like. Because here's the thing, God already knows What you got going on in your life? We can't actually hide the sin from God. God knows the condition of our hearts. We have to simply be willing to admit it. I think that God would be like that doctor. God isn't going to come to us and be like, hey, you want me to take care of that arm? Certainly he might do that at times, but more likely he's willing to say, you know what, how about you tell me what's going on in your life, and then we can begin the healing process. Our natural tendency for us to do when it comes to sin is to try to hide our sin. We actually see this if we go back to the very beginning of Adam and Eve when they surrender their lives to sin and they give in to that. It says that when God appeared in the garden that they felt guilt and shame and they tried to hide from God. They went and hid and God asked them, hey, where are you at? God knew where they were at. He wasn't trying to play like Marco Polo. He knew where they were. He was giving them a chance to own up to the decision that they had made. And so from the very beginning, humans have been really good at trying to hide our sin. But turns out we're not actually very good at hiding that sin. Now this morning, interestingly, I was on the way to church and I was listening to the radio and I heard this quote that I thought was really fitting here. Talking about this idea of having sin in our lives and trying to hide it from God. They said this, when, it, when we screw up, religion says, I messed up and my dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up and I need to call my dad. See, it comes down to this attitude of understanding who God is. Because if we view God as this God that if we screw up and we look at him and we're worried that he's going to kill us as a result, we're fearful of approaching him, 
we're going to suffer in the consequences of those sin. But the moment that we realize, you know what, God is actually a good doctor. God is a father that loves us. God is one that we can go to and say, hey, God, I screwed up. And God's going to meet us in that moment with his grace. See, church, we have a loving father, and we don't have to hide our sin from him. Instead, we can go to him and seek healing. And it's only after we admit that sin that the healing process can begin in our lives. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, it's only after we're willing to confess our sins that we are forgiven and purified from all unrighteousness. Simply going and confessing that sin, that's the step that it takes for the healing to take place. And now sometimes it can be really hard to confess our sins. So we see David, for whatever reason, he didn't want to talk to God about the sin. He didn't want to go to God. He was struggling with this. And it might be that we don't like to confess our sins because we have to actually admit that we screwed up. Like we have to be willing to say, you know what, I made a bad decision. We can't play the blame game anymore. Looking back at Adam and Eve, when God approached them, he's like, hey, what happened? We see that Eve says, oh, the serpent tricked me. We see that Adam blames the woman, then he actually blames God. He says, this woman that you put me with, right? We can't play the blame game anymore, but instead we have to be willing to say, you know what? I done messed up. I made the mistake. I need to own up. I need to understand that it was me that screwed up. And so we may not want to confess our sins because we really don't want to admit that we're not perfect. We may have to realize that sometimes we may need to change something about our lives, and change can be hard. If we're struggling with sin, we might need to understand that, hey, I need to change my attitude, I need to change my behaviors, I need to change the things that I'm doing in my life so I no longer struggle with this thing. You can't keep putting your hand back in the cookie jar if you should quit eating cookies. Jesus actually talks about this. He says that if your hand causes you to sin, that you should cut it off. Or that if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out. Now, I don't think that Jesus wants us to be walking around without hands and eyes. I think he's speaking about something a little deeper here. And I think what he's saying is if there is a stumbling block in your life, it might be time for that thing to no longer be in your life. I talk about this with the teenagers with this idea. Let's say I'm going on a diet and uh, I decide I should quit eating Oreos because, man, I love Oreos, right? But I know that Oreos are not healthy for me. Uh, and this is a comparison. So Oreos equals sin, in case you guys aren't tracking with me, right? So Oreos are bad news. I know I shouldn't be having any Oreos. I think Jesus would call me and say, hey, you should quit eating Oreos. Uh, and then when it comes to going to the store, I have a decision to make. When I go down the store and I'm looking at the aisles, the wise thing for me to do, and I think what Jesus would say when he says, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye, I think what he's saying is, hey, how about you don't go down the cookie aisle anymore? Right? When I'm walking down the aisles and I like get to the pasta aisle and then the, I don't know, seasonal aisle and then that next aisle is like the cookie aisle, I can, because I have freedom of will, I can decide to go walk down the aisle. And I can tell myself, I'm strong, I'm not going to give in. And I can walk down the aisle and I can play with that temptation and I can look at the Oreos and be like, man, they got, they got the family size double stuffed Oreos? Those are my favorite. Like I can look at that and I can tell myself, ah, no, I'm not going to give in to it. But we all know what's going to happen. If I try in my own willpower to not give in, 
I'm going to buy like three packs of family-sized double-stuffed Oreos. I'm going to give in to it, and then what's going to happen? I'm going to go home, I'm going to eat all the Oreos, and then I'm going to feel terrible as a result. The decision I should have made was to go back and say, when I'm in the store, I should avoid the cookie aisle altogether. That's, I think, what Jesus would say to us. This might be why we don't want to admit some kind of sin. Because if we're struggling with some kind of sin in our lives, there's going to have to be change. If you're struggling with things on your phone, you may need to get rid of your phone. If you're struggling with gossip, you may not need to hang out with a certain person for a while. If you're struggling with certain substances, you may need to get rid of those substances in your life. You may need to go to some counseling. You may need to go into some kind of rehabilitation, whatever it is. If you are really wanting sin to change in your life, if you've got unconfessed sin, you're willing to confess and say, you know what, I need this to change, you might need to be willing to make actual change in your life. And I think that sometimes, it's funny, I talked about earlier, we get this idea that uh, sin can have a spiritual effect on us. And sometimes we might over-spiritualize struggling with sin. Where we go to someone and say, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. We say, oh, I'll pray for you. And instead, we should certainly pray. And then we should say, hey, how about you get rid of that thing? Like, sometimes it's as practical as that. And so sometimes we don't want to confess sin because confessing sin is hard and we have to actually change. And last week, I actually read this piece of scripture from James 5 that I think is really fitting here, talking about prayer. He says this in James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Sometimes we don't want to confess our sins because we have to actually go to somebody else and say, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. Would you pray with me and would you walk with me through this time? But here's the really cool thing is there is healing in confession. Healing only takes place once we admit that there is a problem and that we need help. Now, here's the thing about unconfessed sin. It has a tendency to hold power over us because instead of being worried about the sin itself, we become worried about what will happen if that sin is revealed to the world. Have you ever had this thought, I can't ask for prayer for something because I'm struggling with it and I'm worried what other people will think? I think sometimes, I remember growing up, we would have the, the people up at the altar that would come for prayer time and God would be tapping me on the shoulder like, hey, you should go pray about that thing. And I would say, I don't want to go tell that person about the thing I'm doing because then they'll know that I'm not a good person. But the thing is, the Bible says none of us are good, that we're all sinful and we all fall short. And really what we need to be willing to do is say, you know what, I've fallen short and I need help. Because here's the really cool thing. When we expose our sin to the grace of God, it no longer holds the power over us that it once did. Exposing sin allows us to begin to address the issue and get help. And that's what David does. He goes and he, can, he finally confesses it. He says, God, I messed up and I need your help. Would you forgive me? And he says right there that he experienced healing because he was willing to confess. and He was willing to experience the grace that God offers him. So then we see jumping back to the psalm, David goes on to encourage us to take a step of faith. Verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while they may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I think that this is true, that experiencing the grace of God in our lives produces a sense of thankfulness for what God has done for us. David understood that once he finally confessed his sin, he began to understand what the grace of God was really all about. He, he got to experience that and walk in that in his life. And he began to understand that life 
When he surrenders to God, he gets to walk in the blessings of God. And he gets to experience the grace of God in a new and mighty way every single day. He realized that no matter what he goes through in life, that God is going to be faithful. That he would be his hiding place in times of trouble. That God would be with him and he would deliver him when he seeks him out. I think that we just need to be willing to take the step into the blessing that God offers us. That we trust God and that he will prove himself to be faithful in our lives. So if you're here today and you're struggling with, man, I don't know if I can confess that sin. I don't know if God will actually forgive me. David got to experience that. and He said, I now get to walk in the blessing of God every single day of my life. Because I get to look back and see that God was faithful then. I get to know that God will be faithful now. And I get to know that God is going to be faithful in the future. See, we get to actually experience that. We don't just get to learn about it, but we get to experience it in our lives in a real way. Then we see, jumping back to the psalm, it actually takes an interesting turn. David takes a pause for a moment, and God actually addresses us here. Verses 8 through 10. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. This is so cool. God takes a moment and he speaks to us, and this is what God is doing. He's promising to lead us and watch over us. I think this is really cool that uh, God doesn't just set us into motion and say, like, good luck. But instead, he says, I will walk right beside you so that when you stumble, I will be with you. So that when you're having good times, I'll celebrate with you. So that when you're suffering, I will comfort you. God promises to give us that direction. I think sometimes we go through life and we feel like we just need to be good enough and hope that God uh, doesn't notice when we screw up. It's almost like being blindfolded and walking through a minefield, hoping that we're not going to take a bad step. But instead here, God says, I haven't left you alone. I'm not going to leave you without any direction, but I will walk with you. When I read this verse, the image I get in my mind is like a dad helping his child learn to ride a bike. Uh, instead of just like sending the kid off, be like, hey, here's your bike, good luck. Right? God is a good father, and he comes along and says, hey, I'm going to walk with you for a moment. I'm going to show you how to do this. I will instruct you. And then he gives us a chance, and sometimes we wipe out really bad. But the good news is, is God is loving, and he'll come, and he'll pick us up, and he'll dust us off, and he'll say, all right, what did we learn? Like, how can we begin to change the things that we've done to point in a new direction? And God will walk along with us. See, God is not frustrated with us when we're struggling if we're willing to say, God, would you help me? I remember when my dad was helping me ride a bike, when I said, Dad, would you help me? Like, it was totally okay when I screwed up because he was willing to help me back up. Uh, and so I encourage you that if you have this mindset that God is just waiting for you to screw up, that you've got the wrong understanding, that God is not just waiting to strike you down, but instead he's sitting there saying, hey, I'm cheering for you. Let me help you. Let me point you in the right direction. Let me help you back up. God isn't some angry guy in heaven, but he's a loving father. <clears throat> and I think really what it comes down to is it comes down to our attitude toward God's instruction. See, God is willing to instruct us, and whether or not that instruction finds fertile soil in our lives is whether or not we allow it. Because the Bible here says that if we're willing to humble ourselves and submit to the instruction, we experience this unfailing love. But if we harden our hearts and become stubborn, it's like we're a horse or a mule with no understanding. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be described as a mule. 
I'd much rather be described as someone that would be experiencing the love of God in their lives. And so I think we need to change our attitudes a little bit and say, all right, God, I'm willing to make the changes that you would point out in my life. Would you speak to me, know my heart, and point me in the direction that you have for me? See, I think David is one that speaks from experience in this matter. David tried it on his own. He had the understanding that God was going to be mad at him and strike him down. He lived in that for a while, and it was miserable. And so he finally humbled himself and said, you know what, maybe God is a loving God like he promises to be. And he surrendered himself to God, and he experienced the grace of God in his life, and he received that instruction to point him in the right direction. That's why David is known as a man after God's own heart, because he willingly submitted to the instruction in his life, and he experienced it in a real way. And then finally, David tacks on this last statement here. This is verse 11. It says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all who are upright in heart. To rejoice in the Lord because of his unending love. Notice that David calls the righteous to rejoice here. And I love this translation because he calls it the righteous. This entire psalm is about someone that screwed up a whole bunch. Yet at the very end, that person is described as someone that is righteous. And the really cool thing here is, is people are not righteous because they live perfect lifestyles. People are not righteous because of something that they do, but they are made righteous when they surrender their sin to God and God forgives them and makes them new. I think that we need to recognize our need for God's grace is what produces an upright heart within us and ultimately leads to righteousness. See, we get to rejoice in the love and the grace of God not because of something that we have done, but because God has already done it all for us. And we get to receive the blessing of forgiveness, not because we do enough good things or not because we have it figured out, but we get to receive that blessing because we say, God, I am in need of your help. And that's ultimately where this thanksgiving can be experienced, when we walk in the freedom of God's grace. We don't get to experience the blessing because we do it right. We get to experience the blessing because we humble ourselves and turn to God. And so I'm going to wrap things up. Um, and I just want to close with a few questions here. My first question today would be, do you need to confess some kind of sin in your life for the first time? And would you like to experience the relationship that God offers? As I read earlier, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful to forgive us of anything that we've done. The Bible also says that, uh, hey, we all got a lot of sin in our life, but God loves us and he sent his son Jesus to come and die in our place. As we talked about that understanding of God's grace and sin and, and all that entails, that God paid the penalty for our sin. And that when we surrender our sin to him, it is wiped clean. That it's no more, that the, the burden is no longer on our shoulders. There's no future payment that we may owe, that it's been taken care of right then and there. And so I want to ask this morning, this is what I'm going to ask, that we'd all bow our heads and close our eyes just so we can focus for a moment. Is there anybody here this morning that you would say, you know what, I want to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I would like to have a relationship with a loving father, and I would like to experience that blessing that David talks about. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up real quick? I'm not going to call you out. Awesome, thank you, thank you. I'm not going to ask what sin you're dealing with. Uh, but we're going to believe that when we confess our sins, that God is faithful to forgive. And so that's what I'm going to ask. We're going to say a, a quick prayer together. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. These aren't magic words. We're just expressing what's going on in our hearts. So let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for today. I admit that I'm not a perfect person. But I believe what your word says. 
that you love me, that you sent your son for me, that you lived a perfect life, you died in my place, and you rose again so that I could have my sins forgiven. I ask you to forgive me and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can look up back up here. If you made that decision for the first time ever, I would love to chat with you after service about what that means to really follow Jesus. Um, and I'm so excited anytime someone makes that decision, right? That is the best decision you will ever make in your life. My second question for today is this, is do you have a sin in your life that you've been holding on to and need to confess to God? Like maybe you are a Christ follower and you're trying your best every day to do all that you can, but there's maybe something that's been hanging around for a while. Maybe uh, you've been trying to hide something from God and you know, like in your mind, you know you can't hide anything from God, but in your heart, you're like, I can't let God know about that. I want to encourage you this morning here in a moment, we're going to sing a song and um, I want to encourage you to take a moment during this song and say, you know what, God, I've got this thing in my life and I need to confess that to you. Lord, I don't want to just give you access to part of my life, but I want to give you access to all of my life. God, I don't want to confess this uh, just because, but God, I want to confess it because I want to experience the blessing of your forgiveness in my life in a real way. So I want to encourage you, if there's something, you have this burden, maybe you're like David and you're feeling like your bones are wasting away. You get up in the morning and you can't face the day because you know you're going to struggle with that thing or whatever it is. Understand that there is healing that takes place when we confess. And so I encourage you to do that. And, and then maybe I want to encourage you to take another step. As I said, sometimes we can be really spiritual about this and we just say, if I just pray enough, the temptation will go away. But maybe we need to get practical. And God would speak to you and say, hey, you know that thing you keep struggling with? How about you get rid of something in your life? Trade it in for something better. Because I will tell you this, God will never ask for something from our lives without offering something so much better. The grace and the forgiveness and the freedom of no longer struggling with that sin in your life is totally worth getting rid of whatever you need to get rid of in your life to experience that. And so maybe you need to make that decision to say, you know what, I know when I get home, I need to get rid of that thing at home that I struggle with. When I get back to work, I know that I need to remove that thing from my office. Whatever it is, be willing to take that step. And then I'm really going to challenge you. Find someone that you can speak to that you trust, an elder at our church, a pastor, a board member, and say, hey, I'm struggling with this thing in my life. Would you walk with me in accountability so that I can begin to experience what it means not to suffer under that anymore? I would tell you this, that there are things in my life that I've gone to Pastor John to that I've said, hey, I'm struggling with something in my life. Would you uh, help keep me accountable here? Would you pray with me? Would you maybe give me some practical advice about how to deal with this thing? And I've experienced the love and the grace of God because I was willing to take that step. And you may need to take that step this morning. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to sing just uh, a piece of blessed assurance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I'm, I'm not struggling with sin in my life right now. Like I have confessed. I am walking in the freedom and the beauty and the grace of God. And that's really ultimately what we're all striving for. And the really cool thing is, is now we get to celebrate along with those around us and say, hey, we have experienced that grace. So let's take this moment to thank God for the grace that he offers us. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. God, we thank you for today. Right, thank you for the example of David in the Bible, a man that didn't have it all figured out, a man that struggled like each and every single one of us do, but God, that he, were, he was a man that was willing to admit when he was wrong, and he got to experience the grace that you offer. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that there's anyone in this room that is suffering the consequences of unconfessed sin, 
Lord, that you would call that out of them, that they would surrender it to you, and they would begin to walk in the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ. God, that those of us that have experienced that grace, that we would be reminded of the joy of knowing you each and every single day. We thank you for today, and we ask that you go before us. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at engageboise.com. Have an amazing day.